Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Eater's Digest, a show about all things food and dining. I'm Amanda Clute, Editor-in-Chief of Eater. And my name is Daniel Janine. I'm a producer at Eater. Amanda, what are we doing on the show today? Today, I want to talk about a few restaurants that have closed permanently. We are going to bring on a few of our local editors to offer some eulogies for some iconic restaurants that are closing down. Because, Daniel, we are entering a phase of this pandemic that I would liken to a bloodbath when it comes to restaurant closures. And I think it might get worse, but it's definitely the wave is is definitely starting. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that it is happening uh, right now specifically? And I will say that I agree with you. You're seeing restaurants like Broken Spanish, which is a very popular restaurant in L.A., close. And I think what's notable about it is it is it's it it's now you know it wasn't two months ago or three months ago it was like people that thought oh we can probably make it through and then at some point realized that they couldn't yeah like maybe their ppp is running out maybe they see the harbinger of winter coming without indoor dining um i know the unemployment checks were running out there's like this july 31st shift that is happening um i track all of the nationally relevant closings in my newsletter each week and every week there's like a handful and it's always very sad but this past week there were so many where it was shocking to me like so many name brand places um like Twamec in la patina which was a fine dining place LA's Epudo, New York's La Silla, a lot of places like that. But then also across the country, really old places. So there is this 40-year-old bakery in Houston, a 40-year-old dive bar in Houston, this 45-year-old gay bar in San Francisco, uh, all of these like really old places that in July decided to call it quits. Um, so that's why we're going to bring on these editors to just hopefully pay tribute to these restaurants a good reminder that every closure is um, a real tragedy. Uh, also, in the New York Times this week, there was this big piece about how the current statistics put it at one third of independent restaurants in New York closing for good. The numbers are really hard to track, um, but that is the the guesstimate right now. Yeah, I mean it's it's an it's a very difficult thing to project because you have to base projections on projections of, of COVID's lasting impact, which I think is an impossible thing to project. But I I can't imagine that it's going to get better before it stops. No. Well, and the numbers are based on Yelp. Uh, oh, interesting. And they're, the business is closing permanently. So they people who have a Yelp page will just shut it down and say, we're not reopening. However, that Yelp only lists public-facing companies. So there are all kinds of... Mm-hmm 
private enterprises that wouldn't be on Yelp and some connected to restaurants, some just, you know, completely independent. Yeah. But I think there's, there's going to be a lot more scary studies and statistics coming out over the next few months. And that doesn't mean that it's a uh, time where it's impossible to try something new. And, and, you know, we have seen places have some success, but, um, it seems like a good time to talk about some places that are closing and that represent an important part of history or an important part of a city's dining scene. Absolutely. Up first to talk about La Caridad in New York is Robert Sitsima. Welcome to the show, Robert. Thanks for having me. So tell us what, what was La Caridad? Uh, La Caridad was the foremost of the Cuban Chinese restaurants that, uh, that New York had in the last half of the previous century. There used to be a lot of them. I think there were as many as 50, and they were uh, restaurants run by Cuban Chinese people, which are a fascinating group. They came to Cuba around the 1850s to replace enslaved Africans working in the sugarcane. And uh, at one time, there were 100,000 of them living in Cuba. Naturally, over the course of 100 years, they intermarried with other Cubans. And when they came here, they found that they were discriminated against on two accounts. One of them was that they were Spanish speakers. They didn't speak a word of Chinese anymore, at least in most cases. And the other was that they looked Chinese, so people would like come walking up to them and start speaking Chinese. And they would go like, what are you doing? So they had trouble finding employment. They started restaurants. Uh, you know, because they could open Chinese restaurants, they did. And uh, that started uh, maybe around 1959, but most of the of our Cuban Chinese restaurants dated to the late 1960s. And what was special about this one? Well, this one, uh, we had, like I say, 50 of them at the height, probably around 2000, we had 50. A lot of them were in the Bronx. Uh, a lot of them were in Sunset Park. Uh, we had one scattered here and there. Chelsea on 8th Avenue was a hotbed, and so for some reason was the Upper West Side. Uh, the Upper West Side was way less fancy now than we think of it, uh, was way less fancy then than we think of it now. <clears throat> At any rate, there were probably five or six, uh, of which only two remained, and one of them was, uh, was this particular restaurant, La Caridad 78. And a lot of people must have been curious about this Chinese restaurant with a Spanish name. And the minute you would step inside, there was a picture of uh, the patron saint of Cuba. Now, these people came here after Castro, the, the Castro came to power in the Cuban Revolution. And uh, many, many people didn't fit in with his future plans for the island. And among them were the Cuban Chinese who uh, said, let's go to New York. Uh, most Cubans, picked Miami and places down south, but for some reason, because there had been a Cuban uh, population here for a long time, they came to New York, they set up these restaurants, and, and it kind of blew my mind because I went in there and they had this menu in two pages. One page was all Cuban dishes, the other page was all Chinese dishes, and I'm going like, why, why this strange combination of food, and why did the two forms of food never mix? And the, the truth, of course, was that these Cuban Chinese, they were Cubans. They spoke Spanish. They ate Cuban food. Uh, China was a dim memory coming from 100 years before. Uh, and they had assimilated with the rest of the population. So they were cooking the food that they loved on the Cuban side of the menu. 
Uh, and there were other purely Cuban restaurants in town that were from different Cuban groups, but this had its own little, uh, it its own little flair. To begin with, it was really inexpensive. Um, the Chinese half of the menu, which to me didn't taste as good. I mean, we even then we had so many different kinds of good Chinese restaurants. This was Chinese food that tasted like it had been put in a time capsule at zero degrees, uh, at absolute zero, and just preserved for 100 years. And you were digging up something that was uh, interesting, but didn't taste as good as the, you know, the Ropa Vieja and the, uh, and the lechon asada and all the other roasted meats that characterize Cuban cuisine. How was the Cuban food? The Cuban food was just great. The Cuban food was, uh, if a diner had been opened in Cuba, it would serve food like this. It was food aimed at everyday people eating everyday food. And seeing Cuban food like that, you know, we had our fancy kind of Ricky Ricardo nightclubs. We had our fancy Cuban restaurants. We even had a bunch of kind of mid-brow Cuban restaurants. But these were really working class Cuban food. Uh, heavy on the rice and beans, heavy on the fried yucca with the garlic sauce. Uh, so it was just, it was exactly what you wanted to eat if you wanted to be slapped in the face with garlic in the middle of the day. Uh, it was just... Do you think it means anything for the rest of the Chino-Latino scene in New York? Well, I am aware uh, that there are restaurants like Asia de Cuba, I think is one of them. Over the last 30 or 40 years, they've been restaurants that uh, that took Cuban Chinese food such as it was received here and then made it fancy. Uh, and I recall eating at a couple of those places, but I don't remember exactly where, but they were, you know, they were our usual kind of fakey places. The, the food was good, but I wished, I wished that I'd had the, the prototype. I wished I had, you know, black beans and white rice and a plate of steaming uh, pork roast covered with garlic sauce. You know, I, I really wanted the original more than I wanted the invented uh, chefified form of the food. There was nothing wrong with that. And I think there's a couple of those places still existing. Are there any places still existing that are, that are owned and operated by Cubans? Well, that's an interesting thing because as the Cuban Chinese scene here progressed through about 2000, that group was so unique and so inter-ethnic that uh, the people who ran it kind of like intermarried further, uh, began to speak fluent English, stopped speaking Spanish. The group was further diluted. The Cuban and the uh, Chinese halves of the menu began to intermarry so that you could hmm. get like specials for lunch that had like uh, a rotisserie chicken and also like uh, egg foo young or, uh, or fried rice or, or uh, you know, uh, all sorts of egg rolls and stuff like that. So you suddenly had the two cuisines merging. And that may be the point at which it disappeared completely. Once the two cuisines were no longer separated and the food became more Chinese. These places became a lot like kind of neighborhood Chinese carryouts. So not to be cliche, but it's sad that we're losing such like an obvious representation of a certain history in New York's dining scene. 
Well, you're exactly right, because one of the things that I have just discovered, you know, when I wrote the piece for Eater, and I was kind of like looking around in Instagram and in uh, Twitter and looking in Wikipedia and stuff like that, I discovered that no other city had this Cuban Chinese dining scene. It was something really unique to New York, hmm. so, which was a kind of a bummer because uh, we're, we're missing something that is unique to the city's right. foodways. Uh, I mean, everyone agrees that maybe you can find a, a Jewish jet deli just as good if you go to Ann Arbor or, uh, or to Los Angeles. But Cuban Chinese restaurants, not so much. I love that. Well, Robert, thank you so much for the eulogy. Thanks so much for having me on. Up next on the show, we have Eater LA editor Matthew Kang to talk about another really sad closing Matthew, what is happening in Los Angeles? Man, LA's Koreatown is just taking shots here and there. Uh, so many restaurant closures, notably Chunwon Restaurant, which uh, was open since 94 and was one of my personal favorite uh, traditional Korean restaurants. And um, secondly, this um, potentially even more iconic Koreatown restaurant called Tongiljang. Uh, Tongyo Chung is like, I like to call it the sort of Musso and Frank of, uh, of Koreatown restaurants. It, it was open for 41 years and it was just the site of the, so many family celebrations and special occasions. Like the outside of the building has this incredible look where there's just no, there's no windows. It's a standalone building. It's sort of wood paneled and it looks like a building out of, um, you know, like a 1950s post-war soul. You know, you had uh, traditionally inspired uh, dining room with final banquettes and formica tables and sizzling, um, mm. sizzling Korean barbecues. You had these low tables where you would actually sit on the, it's like sort of an elevated platform, but you take your shoes off and you're sitting, you know, uh, it almost has a sort of palace feel where you're sitting on these low tables and you're sitting Indian style on the, uh, on the tables. It's really, it's really a unique experience. It just gives this feel of like these mom and pop restaurants, the ones that make all their punch on from scratch that put just incredible love and care into traditional dishes. Um, I'm not sure that they're going to be around in five to 10 years, uh, in, in, in the numbers that we had, um, in the past couple of decades. Yeah. There's also something about restaurants where they're so heavily based on the experiential aspect to it. And it's a, it's a tougher thing to, to pivot. Like a lot of other classic LA restaurants, Tong Yichang was about so much about the space and so much about sitting on the low tables or, you know, sitting around, um, these booths. Uh, it, it doesn't, I guess like there's a specialness to the place and during a pandemic, you can't experience that. You can't be sitting indoors in close proximity to others, sharing a lot of the same dishes. Korean food itself is literally, it's sometimes just three things, three pots or plates, and everybody's eating from the same plate. And it's just not really uh, pandemic friendly. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that Tong Chang just didn't see a way to adapt to outdoor dining, um, even the takeout and delivery. At, they were on a bus to delivery apps they tried to adapt they scrambled um, they weren't on them before the pandemic um, but korean food 
it's not, it's just not a great takeout thing. You know, it's not pizza and burgers or, or whatever fried chicken sandwiches, something that will travel. Well, uh, you know, you need a ton of packaging, you need to individually package all the panchan, and then you have the steaming stew, uh, in this plastic bin. It's just not, it's just not really great for, for, for takeout. So sad. Just so sad. That's all. It's, it's a real blow to me because I think to me, I associate Koreatown with restaurants and dining and food. I didn't necessarily grow up in, in Koreatown, but Koreatown is the community hub, uh, of all of Southern California. It's where the best restaurants are. It's where the highest concentration of restaurants are. And when you're starting to see these iconic places, um, close after many, many decades, uh, with, with just a bleak future, it's, it's definitely um, tough for the Korean community to swallow. Mm-hmm. And I hope that uh, the, the next generation of restaurant owners, I've actually, I'm actually working on a story right now, talking to second generation restaurant owners um, and talking about how they're, they've pivoted, how they've left their other careers to take over their family business. And I, I do think that there is a light there at the end of the tunnel for these Korean restaurants who are adapting, who, um, who are, are going to try to fight through and, and come out on the other end of this pandemic. Well, Matt, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we appreciate it. And, um, you know, let's, ho- let's hope that there aren't too many more closures. Yeah, hang in there. Thanks. All right, Amanda, next up on the show, we have Claire Laurel, editor of Eater New Orleans. So, Claire, today on the show, we are talking about beloved and iconic restaurants that have closed. So we wanted to hear from you about K-Paul in New Orleans. Can you tell us about this restaurant? Yes, so K-Paul's... Um, Possessive is um, a restaurant founded by Paul Prudhomme, who is sort of um, a Louisiana-born, Cajun country-born chef who is, you know, largely credited with putting Louisiana food um, sort of on the map and bringing Cajun cuisine into consciousness. Um, So it's been around since 1979. He had worked. at Commander's Palace before that. And he and his wife opened K. Paul's um, in the French Quarter. And yeah, I mean, I would say it's, it instantly became known, you know, it's the gumbo, the etouffee, um, black and redfish is what it sort of really became known for it um, is now, or is the reason that now most New Orleans restaurants have some version of a black and red fish dish um, on their menu. I'm sorry, what what is that? So, um, red fish being whether it be red drum or you know that can kind of cover a couple of things, but red fish, uh, very very popular Gulf Coast fish. Um, actually, it is said that after the popularity of this dish rose, um, they had to introduce fishing limits on redfish um, in the Gulf, which exists now. Um, so it's sort of tied to the popularity of his black and redfish dish. It was influential in terms of raising the consciousness of New Orleans cuisine and especially Cajun. When Paul Prudhomme died in 2015, his longtime sous chef who'd been there since 82, who is married to his niece, Brenda, they took it over um, and it sort of remained you know, a upscale, but really approachable and not pretentious destination that was kind of equally loved by locals, but also a big tourist draw. 
very old school service, but without being fussy at all, as some of the other maybe Galatois or commanders would be a lot more kind of fussy white tablecloth kind of service. It was a little bit more homey while still feeling like a special occasion. And what does this mean to you as a, as a closure in the, in the New Orleans dining scene? It's incredibly significant in that I think there's a lot of expectation that some of the newcomers um, won't, won't make it. But I think that there has been a belief that some of these, um, you know, pillars of New Orleans dining and some of the older, most influential restaurants would be able to would be able to to survive just because they have such loyal followings. Um, so I would say this was sort of a wake up call for a lot of folks who think that some of those, you know, world renowned famous New Orleans restaurants are just as in danger as some of the newer contemporary dining spots. Did they try takeout at all or did they just close the doors? After the stay at home order, yes. They tried it for about a month and a half or so, but served their last meal at some point in May, expecting to reopen when restrictions were lifted. And then about, it was probably few weeks ago now, maybe about a month that they decided they were leasing the building. Their lease was up and the building is now going to be up for sale, but they decided not to renew their lease. Oh, I see. So the lease was up. That was the, right. That was the timing explanation. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. They were thinking in the next five years, perhaps they would consider closing, um, but that they would never have expected it to be this soon. Oof. Well, such a loss for New Orleans. Thank you so much for paying tribute to them. Um, and good luck. Good luck out there. Thank you. We will be keeping an eye out. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Daniel, I would like to kick us off by talking about the NBA bubble. Do you know what that is? I know what the NBA bubble is. Yeah, it is, um, you know, the entire NBA, all the teams, the coaches, the staff, food service professionals, security professionals are all in a bubble or what some would call a green zone, which is a uh, COVID free area of land where they have gates of where you have to get tested to go in and so they can ensure 
that everyone inside can live and act freely in a COVID free environment. Well, they're still they're still being careful even inside the bubble. They're, you know, in general, yeah. but wearing masks and stuff. Yeah, sure. staying yeah. distance, um, except the players who are playing just physical ball every yeah. day. Yeah. Getting real close and intimate. Uh, mm-hmm. If we were a super profesh podcast, we would have someone on right now to talk to us about what it's like to cook inside the bubble. But instead, I just want to talk about it with you. <laughs> OK, OK. <laughs> Yeah, I actually did reach out to a chef who's working inside the bubble, but he couldn't even talk about it. Wow. And that's where I gave up. But I do want to talk about it with you because I think it's so interesting to think about, like, how are you eating and drinking inside the bubble? Mm-hmm. Right. And a story came out this week about how all the NBA players are having all this amazing wine shipped to them inside the bubble because so many of them are just millionaire onophiles who collect amazing bottles and need their burgundies in the bubble. The, the first few days of the bubble, I think people all saw online, there was images of a very standard looking like airplane tray of food with like a ham sandwich. Yeah, when they quarantined, yeah. I think it was the food was very depressing because it had to be just like dropped off at their door and it did look kind of like an airplane meal. Right. Um, Speaking of quick side like, note, did you see that there's yeah. a... Um, an airline company, I think in Texas, I don't remember, who are selling their like airline trays of food um, in bulk. Oh, p- yes. Yeah, yeah. Quite sad. Anyway, so but now it seems like people are eating real well in the NBA bubble. Yeah, the bubble is in Walt Disney World. Yeah. So now they can just eat whatever they want. The wine thing is super interesting because... I don't know if you've been to Disney World, Daniel, but they're not really known for their amazing wine lists. So the story that was in ESPN, uh, it opens with J.J. Redick, who is a guard for the New Orleans Pelicans. Uh, He got to his room. He looked at the wine list. He was going to order something up at the Yacht Club in Disney World and then saw it was all these like mass-produced, homogenous Napa cabs. Right. And said, this won't do. Right. I can't I can't be drinking shitty Napa cabs Goofy for grapes. six right. weeks. Uh, so he immediately ordered a wine fridge and ordered a bunch of wine. And the people who are taking in shipments for everyone inside the bubble say that so much wine is coming into the bubble because all these guys are getting their collection shipped to them or they're calling up their wine dealers and having special cases sent. It sounds pretty cool. <laughs> I, I just love the idea of the bubble. You love the bubble? Why do you love, love the, the bubble, bubble so much? You just think it's like a cute thing? Yeah. I like love the idea of all of these super rich, high performance. Being at camp, basically. People, yeah, being stuck, like sequestered away from their family, away from their friends. They are ordering in all their fancy needs, bringing mm-hmm. their essential oils. And like just like it should be a reality show. I'll tell you, having from having looked into some of these things too. I think we looked into seeing into making a video with someone who was uh, the chef in there. Uh, the email we got, or I, I feel like the email we got was something like, "Like, yeah, everyone wants to shoot videos in the bubble, so like, get in line." You know, like I think that you are not the yeah. first person to say that this would be a good reality show. You know, it's like people watch Big Brother, and that's just fucking random people. Yeah, imagine if it's. NBA celebs. <laughs> Moving on, Topo Chico, kind of like a, you know, a trendy sparkling water in a glass bottle uh, that 
recently. Beloved by Texans. It was purchased recently by uh, Coca-Cola, and they have released a, or they have they announced that in uh, in America and, and some, some some countries outside of the states, they are going to be rolling out Topo Chico hard seltzer. Um, yeah, let me tell you what I find interesting about this is that all the other hard seltzer releases have been like to me in the category of White Claw, right? Which is like junky and funny and like enjoyable, but kind of in an ironic way. You would never be interested in it as like the uh, perfect culinary, like it's not a culinary development that would be exciting uh, as a cocktail, right? But the fact that Topo Chico is getting into um, into hard seltzer is interesting because I think of it more like I'm obsessed with San Pellegrino, you know, and if, if San Pellegrino got into the hard seltzer game, then we start getting into the realm of like, of, of things that, you know, are things that like I would try to make at home, right? Like mm-hmm. it's no longer just a joke toy style of drinking. It's like what happens when there are actually interesting cocktails being sent out or, or being available for purchase at convenience stores or wherever just like um third wave coffee shops have gotten into the game and like blue bottle is making uh culinarily and i guess nuanced interesting coffee beverages that are available in some cases at like 7-eleven hard seltzer is trying to move beyond the low brow classification and i think like now hipsters and people of taste right can and should like hard seltzer now that Topo Chico is doing it. Is that what you're saying? I see the world in which that is a possibility. Mm-hmm. I, I guess it's just like something like to- Topo Chico would have never, it would have never occurred to me that it would even be a possibility. They could be, they could get involved in this, you know. I mean, Daniel, so many fight. things in 2020 I could not have imagined. But and this, this is, is just, where really I it, draw the line. Add it to the list, my friend. <laughs> But you know, White Claw Summer was just was a year ago, and look look how far we've come in terms of the heart heart seltzer discourse. Yeah, it's not a flash in the pan. It's maybe it's here to stay. Maybe this is just like part of how we drink. Yeah, now. Amanda. Next up, there's a kind of a big story that we haven't really been following as as hard, as closely because we we kind of flooded the zone, as you like to say, with it uh, maybe a year ago. But Impossible Foods who make, you know, the impossible burger that kind of took the world by storm a a few years ago, um, neck and neck with Beyond Meat for being kind of like the most popular of the meat substitutes, for some reason established themselves as like the cool one, you know, Uh, branding, edginess, whatever. But Every time, I feel like once every couple months, it'll be like Impossible Meat experimenting with McDonald's, Impossible Meat and experimenting with Trader Joe's, and they keep ramping up. But I think today is a, is a good time to talk about it because they have just announced that Impossible will be available in Walmart, which, you know what? That's home run. You know, it doesn't really get any bigger than that in terms of an announcement. Yeah, I think the Walmart thing is big. It's also, if you look at the stats, the grocery store sales of faux meats rose by 264% mm-hmm. in the nine weeks ending in May 2nd. So just that late part of spring, 
like people were going nuts for plant-based meat products. Uh, and we reported on the breakdown in the supply chain uh, with meat plants and all the issues there. And that's very top of mm-hmm. mind for so many consumers. Um, even if the supply chain is back, even if you're, we're not worried about shortages right now, just the idea of the danger that these processing plants are causing for the communities and for workers is very problematic for a lot of people. So I think people who were already on the fence about faux meat or who were, you know, maybe already there, like they're buying more of this stuff. And I think the impossible has said that their business is going to increase 50 fold in 2020 alone. And I'm sure that's the same for beyond Meat uh, or similar for beyond Meat and a lot of the competitors. So it, um, they are one of the quote unquote winners in this pandemic. I would say, yeah, it seemed like they were, first of all, uh, I just want to say that, um, everything you said there was filled with numbers and stats and real information. And I appreciate that because, uh, I don't know if what I said contained as much of that. We're partners, my friends. That's why we are a dynamic duo. As restaurants were shutting down, it, I remember that they were talking about how it was like, oh, we, you know, we definitely have to, they were quicker to pivot to get their product into stores. Whereas, uh, and they had that opportunity. Whereas what we talked about on the meat episode was that the major industrial meat processors weren't as capable of, of repackaging their massive output to be appropriate for grocery stores. So yeah, as you say, uh, they are one of the winners and, um, it shows that, uh, the large scale meat manufacturing is much more fragile than uh, this, which, you know, take whatever side you want of the argument, but you can, it's very easy to make the case that from an environmental perspective is, is better than the factory farming meat stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting for impossible. I don't know if you mentioned this, but like the fact that they were so reliant on restaurants and, you know, restaurants are obviously a troubled mm-hmm. sector right now. So the idea that they were able to, like they were already in some stores, but the idea that they were able to increase that and Walmart is a good example of that. But I think that's been really key for them because it could have been a a story where this was the moment where Beyond Meat took over because Impossible wasn't ready and blah, blah, blah. So it's interesting to see them still holding on. So good for them. That's fun. Uh, It's nice to always highlight a COVID winner because... There are lots of COVID losers. I mean, everyone's a COVID loser and no one's really a winner. But yes, some businesses are are succeeding in this moment. <laughs> uh, Martha Stewart was catching some shit on, Insta- <laughs> on Instagram for having um, an indoor dinner party uh, five days ago. Like a lot of people saying like, Martha looks beautiful, but what about social distancing? Beautiful, but why aren't you social distancing during this pandemic? Elitists get COVID too. This does not look like social distancing. I'm just reading the top comments here. Do you have some special permission not to social distance? Get with the program. Uh-huh. This is beautiful, but not respond. Wow, it's crazy. I was just reading these, hoping to find some some of the knocks on her, but they're really all these top comments are really uh, really coming at her. Notable because Martha Stewart has become kind of a hero of quarantine on Instagram. She's put up a couple. Uh, photographs of, you know, her at the pool, done some fun gardening videos, and uh, she's finally drawn the ire of her uh, following. So I guess the thing that the takeaway for me is like, I think people are having dinner parties. I think people are hanging out with people they are comfortable hanging out with. But like, 
You still can't post a photo of you eating and chilling inside. <laughs> did did she have a response? No, but her next um, Instagram photo she put up, I believe, let me confirm this. I believe the next thing she put up was an outdoor dinner party, which, uh, you know, mm. Mm-hmm. She yep. realized the error of her ways. I mean, how many how many seats were there? In her indoor thing? How many seats were at the original dinner party? Yeah. I got gotcha. you. Here, one, two, three, eleven seats. Eleven. Maybe she, maybe she has an eleven person pod. Like we already know that she's potted up with her gardener and a few other staffers. So it's not too much of a stretch to think maybe she just has a big pod. Maybe she's, you know, there's an agreement. Her and some friends, they've all agreed. They're going to they're gonna pod together. You know, I have a pod with another family. Uh, if we had a picture of our dinner party, it would maybe look bad. But I think it's acceptable in these days to have pods. People have to survive. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to get through it however you can. If she's having a real dinner party with a bunch of strangers inside, like that's a no-no. But maybe, maybe there's an explanation. I give Martha benefit of the doubt. Anyway, Amanda, um, thank you for potting with me, LOL. Um, <laughs> we will be back next week with some more content. Um, thank you also to Matthew Kang, to Robert Titsuma, and to Claire Laurel for sharing their obituaries for some beloved restaurants. And yeah, we will be back here next week. <laughs> <laughs>